Well, good morning, church family, on this third Sunday in Lent. On November 13th, 1933, 20,000 pastors and church leaders from throughout Germany gathered together for a rally in Berlin at the Berlin Sports Palace. And the purpose of this historic rally was to unify all of Germany's church leaders around a common vision for spiritual awakening in Germany. Since the end of World War I in 1918, churches in Germany have been in steady decline. Remember, Germany was the birthplace of the Protestant Reformation that eventually spread throughout Europe. And yet with the growing popularity of Marxism and the powerful communist Soviet Union just to the west of Germany, many church leaders were concerned that their nation was losing its Christian identity. So these 20,000 pastors and leaders went to the Berlin Sports Palace that day, hungry for spiritual awakening in their land. The rally's organizers promised that this awakening was about to happen through Germany's newly elected chancellor. And that chancellor's name was Adolf Hitler. And although Hitler was not a particularly religious person, many pastors appreciated the fact that he was a vocal critic of Marxism and that he vigorously opposed the Soviet communist government. So speaker after speaker at this rally for 20,000 pastors and leaders promised that spiritual awakening could come to Germany through Nazi nationalism. But for Christians to be part of this awakening, pastors and church leaders would need to find the courage within themselves to finally break their churches free from Christianity's Jewish roots. Speakers insisted that a careful historical reading of the New Testament revealed that Jesus wasn't actually Jewish at all. Instead, they insisted that Jesus was an Aryan like they were, blonde hair, blue-eyed of white European descent. And they said that Jesus opposed Judaism and was murdered by the Jewish people before he was able to finish his mission. The keynote speaker of that rally a government-appointed church leader named Ludwig Muller said that Adolf Hitler was the man that God had chosen to complete the mission that Jesus had started. And so speakers at this rally in Berlin proposed removing the Old Testament from the, the German Bible, replacing the Apostles' Creed and the Nicene Creed with new creeds, rewriting church worship songs, creating new catechisms for children and youth. One of these new catechisms included an 11th commandment, keep thy bloodline pure. One of the new creeds they proposed goes like this. We believe in almighty God and in the mission of our German blood, which grows eternally young on German soil. We believe in the people who maintain that blood and in our leaders sent to us from God. A new verse was added to the German Christmas song, Silent Night, that went like this. Silent night, holy night, all is calm, all is bright. Only the chancellor, steadfast 
in fight, watches over Germany by day and by night, always caring for us. Nazi nationalism rejected the cross of Christ. Instead of seeing Jesus as a crucified Jewish Messiah, they reimagined him as a heroic white Aryan warrior. In fact, in 1937, the Nazi government classified artistic depictions of Jesus on the cross as degenerate art. Nazi nationalism insisted that for spiritual awakening to come to Germany, the swastika must replace the cross. And that rally in Berlin in 1933 was the beginning of a movement that we now know in history as the German Christian movement. The German Christian movement was the Nazi government's attempt to take over the church in Germany. Now, from our vantage point, it's hard for us to imagine Bible-believing Christians and church leaders going along with this. But uh, a historian named Susanna Heschel in her book, Aryan Jesus, estimates that 40% of Germany's pastors and church leaders actively embraced the German Christian movement, and another 40% were sympathetic to it. That rally in 1933, held just months after Hitler had been elected chancellor, became a massive movement that nearly overtook the church in Germany. The German Christian movement is a cautionary story of what can happen if we lose sight of the cross of Christ. During this season of Lent, we're in a series called The Greatness of the Cross. And in this series, we're looking at what Jesus actually accomplished when he died on the cross. In the first week, we looked at the cross as the great ransom and then last Sunday, Pastor Caitlin helped us see the cross as the great exchange. And today we're going to look at the cross as the great example. So if you're able, would you stand for the reading of God's word today from Luke chapter 9, verses 20 through 26. Beginning in verse 20, but what about you, Jesus asked? Who do you say I am? Peter answered, God's Messiah. Jesus strictly warned them not to tell this to anyone. And he said, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law. And he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. Then Jesus said to them all, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world and yet forfeit or lose their very self? Whoever is ashamed of me and my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his glory and in the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. You can be seated. 
As Jesus and his followers begin their long journey towards the city of Jerusalem, Jesus asks them who they think he is. What is his identity? And Peter answers, you are God's Messiah. This is sometimes called Peter's confession. The word Messiah means anointed one. People expected the anointed one, the one anointed by God, the Messiah, to be the one who would deliver Israel from their Roman colonizers. They expected the Messiah to restore Israel to their national greatness and economic prosperity that they had experienced centuries earlier under King David and King Solomon. The Messiah would be a warrior, a conqueror, a king, a hero. The Messiah was expected to be a Jewish version of the Aryan version of Jesus. And nearly everyone in ancient Israel had this mental image of what God's Messiah would be like. Jesus warns them to keep this to themselves. Now, why? Because although Jesus truly is the Messiah, he's not that kind of Messiah. He wasn't going to lead a rebellion against the pagan colonizers. He was going to lay down his life for the pagan colonizers. He wasn't going to restore Israel to their greatness among all the other nations. Instead, he was going to open the kingdom of God to all the other nations. Jesus was God's suffering Messiah. He would be rejected by the leaders of his people. He would be beaten, mocked, and crucified by the Romans. But then three days later, he would be raised to life. Now, in Matthew's account of this same event, Peter rebukes Jesus for saying this. In Peter's mind, God's Messiah couldn't suffer. And in Matthew chapter 16, verse 23, Jesus is recorded as saying to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. Jesus saw Peter's rejection of the cross as satanic. Back to our reading from Luke, after predicting his suffering, Jesus holds up the cross, his cross, as an example. Anyone who wants to follow Jesus must embrace the example of the cross. Followers of Jesus may, must take up their own crosses, not just once, but each day to be disciples of Jesus. The cross is the great example. Now, some people get nervous when we talk about the cross as an example. And this is because there are some churches that view the cross as only an example. There are, are churches that reject the cross as a ransom to set us free from sin or as an exchange to bring us forgiveness of sins. And instead, they see the cross as only an example, nothing more than an example. So let me be clear, that's not what I'm saying today. The cross is not only an example but it's certainly not less than one. We dare not lose sight of the cross as a great example. You see, the cross reveals that the Christian life is cruciform, cruciform. The Christian life is a cross-shaped life, a life of daily cross-bearing for those who trust and follow Jesus. Being a disciple of Jesus means embracing the cross as our great example. 
Less than a year after that rally in Berlin, a German pastor named Pastor Martin Neimaller started the Pastors' Emergency League. And the Pastors' Emergency League was created to support pastors who had been driven out of their churches for not embracing this Aryan view of Jesus. In 1934, 138 of these pastors from this league gathered in the city of Barmen, Germany to write up a public criticism of the German Christian movement. That public criticism is called the Barmen Declaration. And that gathering in Barman gave birth to a movement called the Confessing Church Movement, a resistance movement to the influence of Aryan Nazi nationalism in churches in Germany. And at that gathering in Barman, there was a young pastor in his 20s named Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Now, if you've been attending Glenn Kirk for any period of time, you probably know that Bonhoeffer is one of my favorite writers. I probably quote him too much. I have all of Bonhoeffer's writings, letters, and sermons translated into English. And in his writings, Bonhoeffer mentions the cross of Jesus more than 1,300 times. That is no accident. Bonhoeffer knew the importance of the cross. In fact, in his Cost of Discipleship, Bonhoeffer says that Satan is always trying to pull the church away from the cross. You see, we ignore the cross as a great example at our own peril because the Christian life is cruciform. So how does the cross as a great example apply to us today? I can think of three ways. First, as a great example, the cross calls us to find true freedom by denying ourselves. Find true freedom by denying ourselves. If we want to follow Jesus, to be his disciples, self-denial is part of the deal. Now, I know that's not a very popular opinion these days. Our, our world urges us to discover ourselves, indulge ourselves, treat ourselves, express ourselves, find ourselves. After all, there's nothing in our culture more important than the self. But here's the problem with the self. Yourself can't save you. Ourselves cannot make us right with God. Ourselves cannot ransom us from our captivity to sin, evil, and death. And as long as we're relying on the self, we are trapped. We're like a prisoner locked in a cell, convinced that if we just try hard enough, we'll eventually figure out how to escape on our own. And so when an actual rescuer shows up who could actually set us free from the cell, we refuse their cell, their help, because we're convinced we'll eventually figure it out ourselves. Denying ourself is humiliating. It means admitting that we can't save ourselves, that we don't have it all together. It means abandoning the quest to save ourselves. But this is the path to true freedom. This is the path to finding life. Self-denial, humbling ourselves, admitting that we cannot save ourselves. The cross reminds us that self-denial is the path to true freedom because the Christian life is cruciform. It's cross-shaped. Secondly, the cross calls us to discover what's truly important 
by turning our back on the world's empty promises to find what's truly important. When you think about it, Christ's suffering started long before the cross. His suffering started years earlier, right after his baptism. Maybe you remember the story. After his baptism by John, Jesus was led by the Spirit to be tested in the wilderness for 40 days. And there in the wilderness, Jesus suffered three satanic temptations. Satan first tempted Jesus to turn stones into bread. And then he tempted Jesus to make a spectacular entrance into Jerusalem by jumping from the very top of the temple and floating to the bottom to impress everyone. And then finally, Satan tempted Jesus to bow down in worship in exchange for all the kingdoms of the world. Christian author Henry Nowen sums up these three experiences as the temptation to be relevant, the temptation to be powerful, and the temptation to be spectacular. And all three of those temptations were shortcuts around the cross. And we face those same temptations to avoid taking up our cross as well. It grieves my heart to see so many churches losing sight of the greatness of the cross because they've become obsessed with relevance, fame, and power. Because these are the very temptations the church in Germany faced. They could be relevant. They could be spectacular. They could be powerful if they would exchange the cross for the swastika. But as Jesus asks, what good is it for someone to gain the whole world and yet lose or forfeit their very self? The cross of Jesus calls us to turn our backs on the world's empty promises, to abandon our hunger for relevance, our desire to be spectacular, our quest for power, to follow him by denying ourselves, taking up our cross each day, because this is where we'll find what's truly important. There was a university professor in Germany during World War II named Helmut Thielecki who discovered this. Thielecki was a rising star in the German academic world when Hitler was elected chancellor. Some whispered that he might someday become one of the greatest scholars of his generation. And he could have just kept his head down, teaching his classes, doing research, publishing papers, but he couldn't keep silent about what he saw happening to the church. And so he joined the Confessing Church movement. And it cost him dearly. The government removed him from his university teaching job and he was banned from teaching or publishing. He was sent to the city of Ravensburg where he was forbidden to travel and kept under constant surveillance by the Gestapo. Tilaki took up his cross turning his back on the world's empty promises. But as he did, he found out what was really important. Because there in Ravensburg, Tilaki became the pastor of a tiny little congregation filled mostly with, with elderly men, women, and children because everyone else was off fighting in the war. And his experience pastoring that little church changed his life. After the war, Tilaki became friends with Billy Graham and was part of the post-war efforts 
to renew and rebuild the church in Germany. He learned that the Christian life is cruciform, that the cross invites us to find what's truly important by turning our back on the world's empty promises. Finally, as the great example, the cross calls us to look for future glory by embracing Christ's shame. Most people at the time of Jesus viewed the idea of a suffering Messiah as shameful, disgraceful. We often fear that other people's shame might spill onto us. Well, taking up the cross to follow Jesus means letting the shame of the crucified one spill onto us. That's why in verse 26, Jesus warns us about being ashamed of him and of his words. Those unwilling to embrace the example of the cross will be ashamed of a crucified Messiah and his words. And Jesus warns that he will then be ashamed of those who are ashamed of him. Because there will come a time in this upside down world when things are set right side up. A time when the shame of the cross is replaced by glory, when the disgrace of the cross is overshadowed by greatness. The German Christian movement refused to embrace the shame of a Jewish crucified suffering Messiah. And I don't think it's a stretch to say that Jesus was ashamed of those when they exchanged his cross for Hitler's swastika. Consider the story of Jürgen Moltmann. Jürgen was born in Hamburg, Germany in 1926. And when he was 16 years old, he was drafted by the Nazi government to go fight on the front lines of World War II. Eventually, Jürgen was captured by a British soldier and was kept as a prisoner of war in Belgium for three years. And during his time as a prisoner of war, Jürgen was shown photos of Nazi concentration camps and he realized what his nation was doing. He sunk into a deep depression. And then a chaplain gave Jürgen a Bible and he started reading it for the first time. And Jürgen was captivated by the cross. He came to faith in Jesus. And after World War II, Jürgen Moltmann became one of the most influential reformed theologians of his century. And perhaps his greatest book is a book called The Crucified God. Listen to what Jürgen says. The true God is not recognized by his power and glory, but God is recognized through his helplessness and his death in the scandal of the cross of Jesus. Jürgen learned that Christian life is cruciform because the cross calls us to embrace Christ's shame because we're looking forward to future glory. So in addition to being a great ransom and a great exchange, the cross is the great example. And we dare not lose sight of this aspect of the greatness of the cross. Now, the Nazi government eventually gave up on the German Christian movement even though massive numbers of pastors and church leaders embraced it, not all did. And that was largely because of the ongoing work of the confessing church. The confessing church was led by men and women like Professor Tielecki and Helen Jacobs and Dietrich Bonhoeffer, Pastor Martin Neimoller, Pastor Stephanie Mackinson. And interestingly, these leaders never saw their movement as a political movement. 
They saw it as an attempt to keep the church centered around Jesus, the crucified one. These leaders paid a heavy price for that commitment. Helen Jacobs, a leader in the confessing church, spent two years imprisoned. Pastor Stephanie Mackinson, the only female delegate at that gathering in Barman, lost close family members, including her two daughters. Pastor Martin Neimoller spent seven years in Dachau, the concentration camp. Bonhoeffer was arrested and eventually executed by the Nazis for crimes against the state. These men and women of the confessing church movement, they weren't perfect, but they unashamedly held on to the example of the cross. And when the Nazi regime finally collapsed in 1945, leaders of the German Christian movement were disgraced. Many were exiled. Many were stripped of their ordination and in some cases tried as war criminals. The keynote speaker from that 1933 rally, Ludwig Muller, took his own life when he knew he was going to face a tribunal for war crimes. It was the surviving members of the confessing church who had the credibility and the spiritual depth to begin laying the groundwork for authentic spiritual awakening in Germany because they'd held tightly to the example of the cross. May we never lose sight of the cross as our great example. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the testimony of followers of Jesus from the past. And Lord, we are warned and sobered by how easily people fell victim to losing sight of the cross. Help us follow Jesus as individuals, as a church, as this generation, that we might find what's truly important in denying ourselves, taking up the cross, and following. Amen.